Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now the title of today's show is also the name of the guest because Simran is her own topic. In my own work, I've reached a point where it's maybe not so much understanding the truth or the better way, but articulating it so that people can both resonate with it, understand it themselves, and know its importance. So it's, it's the articulation, I think, that's really the challenge here. And in preparing for the show, I thought of this particular image in my own mind. Imagine there's three people sitting in a room. They're peering at a globe. It's got a cloak over it. The three people are followers of science, religion, and let's call it the new consciousness movement. The scientist looks at the globe and sees ultimate reality apart from him or her. This reality is something to probe, poke, and ponder about, and the image we could we could bring here is the God particle, something apart from us. The religious follower sees the globe as God, something also outside of us, but something to worship, pray to, and for some people, an entity to wait to appear in our lives. Now, the third person walks up to the globe, takes off the cloak, and reveals a spherical mirror. In this mirror, they see pictures of themselves. They see the world as a reflection of who we are. And this is really the image that is in my own mind when I think about how to cast this new understanding. It's the image that I advocate on this show, although perhaps subtly, and in my own book, The Collapse of Materialism, Visions of Science, Dreams of God. With the world connected to us, it starts looking a bit different. And uh, another way to look at this same image is to stop acting as if the world is random, something happening to us, but start finding meaning in everything. Imagine that everything has meaning, not nothing has meaning. This brings me back to Simran, who has earned a reputation to go by one name. She's a creative visionary, a rebel humanitarian in the realms of metaphysics and spirituality. She's the award-winning publisher of 1111 Magazine, host of the top-rated syndicated 1111 talk radio show, author of a number of books, including Conversations with the Universe, Your Journey to Enlightenment, and her newest book, Your Journey to Love, Discover the Path to Your Soul's True Mate. Her task is to inspire people to live beyond self-imposed limitations, allowing life to be experienced courageously and boldly. She speaks nationally, internationally, as she's seeking to move humanity into new paradigms using vulnerability, release, realness, and loving expression. She is Simran. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Philip. I admire your work and really, really applaud what you're doing on the planet and appreciate you having me here for a conversation. 
Yeah, well, uh, I am, you know, I think that one thing that separates you from many others is that you are yourself, you are your own sort of quote-unquote brand, and it's a refreshing brand where we have a lot of people out there sort of mimicking, repeating mantras. But one thing that comes across in your work is that is this notion of knowing yourself, fulfilling your life's mission, looking deeply inside, and all these things that are that are so vital. We talk about them, but it's when you actually put into practice something, something really great happens. But first of all, before we get into it, for those who don't know a lot about you, you went through a period in your life where you made a change with maybe what you've called your default life, and you moved into maybe uh, following your soul's destiny. And this is the, uh, maybe I'm calling, I'm gonna call it the 11 trigger. Um, but why don't you just talk a little bit about your own transformation, Simran, so the people can understand really what you're about. You know, I think that oftentimes we don't realize how much we really do know what we're doing on the planet. A lot of us walk around thinking, I don't know who I am, why I'm here, what my purpose is. And there is an underlying piece of us that really does know that. And I tapped into that early on simply by way of dysfunction, by way of really um, messing up my life, by falling into a cataclysm of challenges and problems and obstacles that I couldn't figure out how to get out of, much less why they were showing up in my life. And as those things appeared, I realized that I'm not here like many human beings might believe we're here to attain the seven-figure incomes or the status or the big house or the white picket fence. I'm actually here for a sole purpose, something so much bigger than my little mind or identity can fathom. And for that reason, I wanted to know why what showed up in my life was showing up and how I was connected to it because I really could not believe that everything was random. And that opened up a doorway to really seeing the repetitive signs and symbols that were showing up, which began as 11-11, but then became so much more in actuality, became the entire world constantly speaking not only to me, but I realized was speaking to everyone. And that's how the conversations with the universe actually began. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a point in time where the evidence builds up to such a degree that it can't be doubted anymore. And, and recently, you know, you, you talk uh, in your work about, about synchronicities a lot, and, and I want to get into that a little bit more because I think that's part of this. But lately, I myself have been reading uh, a number of books that, uh, that are along this line, and that is, you never convince somebody of something being true. It's just that the evidence builds to such a point or you are so doggone good that people can't ignore it. And I, I, I think that in this personal transformation area, at least for me, that's what happens. There, there comes a point where you can't turn your back on it anymore. Is that, is that the way you look at things? Is that what happened to you? I believe it has to do with not only that, Philip, but in fact, our level of perceptive awareness. It's almost as if we begin, and it's because of the identity that we believe ourselves to be, we begin looking at life through a straw. 
And if you were to look at life through a straw, you would see a very tiny viewpoint. And it would only focus in on one piece. And if you started to pull back from the straw or took a bigger tube to look out of, you'd see a bigger horizon. And I think as we start to connect the dots, as we start to realize we are more related to life than we believe we are, when we start to understand that the signs, the symbols, and synchronicities are not happening to us, but that the signs and symbols are actually us, and that life in itself is a synchronicity, then we start to realize and take away any of the goggles or tubes or straws that we're even looking through, and we become more and more present and in touch with us being everything. But it's a willingness to even take away the first straw, and I think that that's probably the most challenging place, because that means stripping ourselves of identity, of belief, of what other people told us we were or who we were, or falling into the pack and doing what everyone else is doing. And it can at times be a lonely road, but, you know, you mentioned humor in the beginning. When you look at how serious we are about it all, the seven-figure incomes, the big house, the white picket fence, being like the rest of the pack, um, it's kind of insane. We've all kind of gone mad, and only when we're willing to step out of our own madness will we start to discover the magic and mysticalness of our ordinariness. Yeah, I, I love that 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 straw metaphor. I think that is that is so good, and you know it it happens so so frequently where we see people walking to work. I mean, for I do at least, and they're staring at the at the ground. Their their worries are blinding them, and meanwhile, it's a beautiful sunny day. Um, it's a, a vibrant world, and they're focused on. You know, getting a letter out, or paying the mortgage, or or something that is so microscopic. I I have to also say that this is also, um, to me, a scientific conditioning, where we tend to look at at little things as being you know reality. I mean, I I was going to ask you because you you have an Indian background, whether you think you are more sort of um, hardwired to take more uh, to, to take a holistic view of things than those of us in the West who were raised in the Western mindset. Do you see that you, you have... Know, go ahead, go ahead. What's really funny about that is I, I am of Indian heritage, and I grew up in the Deep South, Bible Belt South, and there was only one temple. And when we went to temple, we went to temple the third Sunday of every month because there was not a large enough congregation. People from three states had to gather to even make up a small congregation. And as I sat in that temple to listen to all of these ancient wisdom and these amazing songs called Shabbats, I didn't understand the language. Yeah. I couldn't speak it. I couldn't understand it. Yeah. And so, you know, everything that came through me, I realized was somehow, even though I didn't understand a word that was being said, somehow I still was understanding and even though I didn't understand the world, uh, whether it was the world that was around me or the Christian world or any of the kinds of worlds that were showing up in front of me, regardless of religion or race or, or economic status, there was still a part of me that was understanding. And I think it's, it's our willingness to open to that. You mentioned the, the man walking down the street worried while it's sunny outside. In the end, it's what we're focused on. He was not focused even on his emotion. He was focused on his worry. 
And what he could have done was actually recognize that all those things, the sun, the worry, and the emotion that he was um, up against, were all just trying to take him back inside to see more of himself. If we could look at everything simply as a mirror to really take us back in to feel, to know ourselves more deeply, to understand what we're really thinking, in order to break apart the cloaks that we wear, the identities that we wear, we'd realize we're so much bigger than we allow ourselves to be. But we have to be willing to recognize, I am the grief I see. I am the worry that I see. In fact, I am the sun that I see radiating in the sky as well. And when we allow ourselves that kind of view, we open up passageways within our consciousness that let us understand not only our connectedness, but our creator capacity. Yeah, I th- that is yeah that is really well put, and it is something that I think you do as well as anybody out there, which is articulating this movement of consciousness. It, the one thing that that has struck me, um, and last last week I had Richard Barrett on the show, who has a book called "The Metrics of Human Consciousness" about the uh, the scientific method to to measure consciousness, but one of the things that comes across with with discussions here is that our consciousness is raising while we are trying to understand consciousness, and we can't forget about that. Each of us, Simran, and I, I'll, I'll include myself here, it, we are taking snapshots along the way, and we have to realize that we are climbing the ladder while we're trying to understand ourselves. And, and, and I think that this is something that we, we, we tend to forget about, that we, we are in a state of, of understanding, but we're also in a state of self-exploration at the same time. You know, there is no—it's it's a movement. I mean, you use the term—and um, I'm going to ask you about this, but I'll do it now. You, you talk about uh, we, are, we are in a space, space suits. That we're not that you 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 take issue with uh, I think it was Pierre Pierre Del Jardin who started at the spiritual we're we're not spiritual beings in physical form we're actually something else can you talk about that a little bit on this on this point here yes yes and I'd like to to start by that word that you used understanding because I think that's one of the key places that we have to move from if we're really talking about true consciousness. We are trying to understand, and consciousness exists outside of the mind. So that's our first box that we get stuck in, is we get stuck inside of our own minds trying to understand something that's not logical and cannot be understood. It can only be immersed in. And when I talk about us uh, not being human beings, is we are here as experience. So yes, we have a physical body, but that's only a part of us that we tend to focus on or even not focus on because many of us are numbed out and not even in our bodies. But I don't even think we're spiritual beings having a human experience because if we were spiritual beings having a human experience, that means when we pass on from this realm, then we are just as separate as spiritual beings as we are as human beings. And that takes us no closer to oneness or consciousness. So that can't possibly be right either. So what are we ultimately? For us to all be in a collective, connected together, then we would have to be experienced, all of us as experience, which means ultimately we are experience experiencing itself. And that would mean you're not on a journey as Dick, Jane, or Bob. You are the journey. 
you are experience experiencing itself. You are not in the world, in a place that is a sphere that is allowing you to live whatever life you're living. You are the world, and every piece and part of it speaking back to you as you. Will you recognize yourself as the tree and the sun and the stars and the plants and everything that is showing up in your world so that you can understand the allness of yourself? Yeah, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm very happy to be speaking with Simran, the author of the new book, Your Journey to Love, Discover the Path to Your Soul's True Mate, and also the publisher of 1111 Magazine and a lot of other things. And we're talking here about something that is extremely important because we're starting to give meaning, Simran, I think, to a lot of the mantras that people articulate over the years but have never realized the depth of the meaning. And specifically, there's the famous Michael Jackson song from the 80s, We Are the World. And that song was so popular, inspiring, but people, I don't know if they really understood the truth of that. The way the way you just expressed it, you know, experience, experiencing itself, is a very pure way to describe, I think, the underlying movement of spirit. But it's related to something that I think is 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 one of the most difficult problems of science, philosophy, and religion. That is, it's the one and the many. And it's the distinction between being one and being individuals. And you talk about this in your book, this tension between wanting to be different but then wanting to be like everybody else. What, what is your take on, on this issue, this, this, this tension between we are individuals, but we are part of the whole. How do you how do you see that right now working out? In my book, Your Journey to Love, I discovered this past year that we each have a what I call a two faced intention, which means from the moment we came into a family, we had two intentions that our entire life has been driven by. And the first one of those is, I want to be so special and unique that I'm not like anybody else on the planet. I want to do something so amazing that no other person has ever done. We've all had that thought. We've all wanted to go somewhere or be something special. Right. And then there's this other intention, which is, I want to be just like everybody else so that I can be loved and accepted. Right. Those are two entirely opposite statements, and the only thing that can be created between the two is struggle, because we are bouncing back and forth between two completely different polarities, and yet we do create both, because we create the specialness and the uniqueness by the story that we live out, each by our own human condition and the journey that we are. We each are completely unique in the story that we create and the hero that we become by the end of it. And we are all exactly the same, completely loved and accepted, because we begin as the essence of love, we are the essence of love, and when we complete what we think is life, we continue as the essence of love. And so if we can understand that we are always the many, and it is our need to be special, to be seen, to be heard, to be acknowledged, to be unique, that makes us 
think we are one in the many. Hmm. You know, there is there. There's so much here because one of my um, issues with traditional spiritualism, and this would include bit, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and a bunch of the um, new um, expressions of those of those uh, teachings, which is that the something it, it goes something like this. The purpose of life is ultimately to join with the one and to, and to dissolve yourself into the infinite bliss and and join with source, something like that. There's all sorts of different ways to put it. See, I've, I've never bought into that because I think that the, the three-dimensional world we're in now is the ultimate form of creation. It's the hardest thing to do, and we are, we are in a testing ground right now trying to put the spiritual truths into concrete reality and so so I don't know where, where you where you come down I just I just threw that out there because it, it's it's where I break um, or I part company with some of the the to me the um, traditional spiritualists because I, I really don't I really think that um, the purpose of life is to have company, have friends, family, something to do. I don't think it's to dissolve ourselves into the into the um, ultimate bliss. So I do think individuation is extremely important, but you have to understand that, that we are connected at the root. I mean that you that, raise a couple of really deep points, Philip, and I want to I want to take us a little more in depth sure. into them. And one thing, when, when I was sitting in the temple and I couldn't understand the words that were being spoken, the one thing that I did know about being Sikh at the time was that it embraced all religions. And so the way that I would reconcile my time in the temple is I would, I would think to myself, all these religions, they simply are just ladders to the same place. So they each must have be made up of certain components. Those components would be stories stories that have been passed along and handed down, probably some things that have been made up, because some of this is being done by man, and pearls of truth that would have to be existing across the board in all of them. So the things that are the pearls of truth, to me, they are part of what I would call superconsciousness. They are, they really are speaking to that universality and that oneness that we all aspire to, but we're trying to understand them we're trying to understand superconsciousness from unconscious mind or semi-conscious mind, and we can't do that. And that is because we are in an identity. As long as we are wrapped in an I, we can never know the whole. And so that brings the second point that you brought up. That means we must then just step more and more into presence. And that means understanding and embracing some of what people want to call the mundane or the ordinariness of life, and that is friends and families and the smell of a flower and watching a sunset and sitting idly by and being bored and allowing emotion to rise up and thoughts to come past so that we can start to crack the shell of who we believe ourselves to be. Only when we allow ourselves to continually die can we open to the aliveness that really exists. But we're so afraid of death, physical death and death in our own lives, death of our career, death of our identity, death of our marriages, death of, 
of our image. We're so afraid of death that we can't move beyond ourselves. So are you willing to die in order to live? Yeah, and uh, then you'll discover how really alive you can be. Yeah, another way to put that is in order to gain the world, you have to give up the world. I mean, that's that's another that's and, and there's all sorts of ways to express that and that actually is in, has has inspired me because it could be put into so many different contexts for example in a in a relationship if if somebody that you care for there if if you don't get the reciprocal benefit you you have to if you give it up it typically leads to a better place. The same thing with a job or somebody who wants to go to a college. Uh, you know, it, if you give it up, if you release yourself, the universe may be waiting there with something better. And that's really, I, I, I think that it is so important to sort of give that release. And it, to me, it's related, Simran, to the notion of transcendence. That and you were talking. Really, it you, is, you know, yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people would say, "Well, you know, why do I have to be like the aesthetics? Why do I have to give everything up? We're in the world; we're supposed to experience everything." And it's not that you can't experience everything; it's our attachment that we end up having right. to everything. I would pose this question to everyone in your audience right now: If in this moment I told you to go home and give away every possession you have, could you do it? Could you right now give away every piece of furniture and empty your house hmm. and be in the open space, in the open vacuum, to see what can rise? Yeah. You would find that your mind and your emotions and your attachments would want to cling. Well, I can't give up this. My mother gave me this. I can't give up this. This was something that I earned. And that's where we go, but see, that's identity. And what we're talking about when you say transcendence is transcending identity. It's not transcending the world, it's transcending the identity. Because you can end up having that much more or greater. Or you may find out, wow, I'm actually lighter, physically lighter now, and I'm breathing easier. And I don't have the weight of the world, and I feel freedom. And now I can move anywhere and do anything because I don't have all this weight I'm carrying around with me and this attachment. That's what they mean by letting go. It's not that we're saying the material world is bad, what we're saying is your attachment to your material world in this moment is holding you down. Yeah, that that I thought that was that's really good, and it's it it's connected to uh, Buddhism, I think. And in in reading in reading your book, your journey to love, it it reminded me of the Buddhist teaching that life begins in suffering, and that the way to cure suffering is to detach yourself from these material fixations or the fixations on the material world and and, and you but you just gave it a, a I think a very helpful gloss which is that we're not saying that you necessarily that you throw everything out the window what we're saying is that we we tend to have an unreasonable fixation on things houses cars computers that we think are going to bring us happiness but that's that's not the case that's that, that that's not the case it's it's letting go and moving beyond what we think is the reality 
and and letting ourselves roam more freely. In in your te- in your experience, what kind of of lessons have you learned from people on whether they are willing to give up these material possessions or or whatever we're calling them right now? And what what practically what practically happens with one of your successful quote unquote students? What happens? You know, I everything that I have learned and that I write about and that I am an example of. So anything I've ever said to anyone or told them to try or to do, I have done myself. Yeah. So that in itself, I am my own first success story. Yeah. Because you have to be willing to immerse yourself in the very things that you're espousing in order to understand what other people are going through. And the beauty that I find right now is I am surrounded by many people that are releasing things and they're opening to new ways of life, and that has to do with trust. In my second book, Your Journey to Enlightenment, I talk a lot about this bondage. And if you look at most people and ask them what they're really after, what you'll find out is they're, they're working so hard to accumulate so much so that they can then retire and be free. Right. And when they can just make the choice to be free. But it's hard to trust life in that way. And yet, I now have clients, I now have people around me that are actually stopping, stopping the rat race, stopping their lives. And you know, you go into a lot of questions and thoughts when you initially start these steps because you go, well, how am I going to pay the bills? And what are people going to think? And you know, how do I live my life day after day and not have anything to do and not have a purpose? And what will that mean? All those fears rise up. And that's the beauty because we finally realize how imprisoned we've been. And what people are finding as they're stepping into this new way of really trusting and letting go and seeing if they really are supported is that they are. They are supported. What they do needs does show up. And they find that their lives are lived much more happily in a simpler way. That we've, we've become a society that thinks we need too much and we don't. And when we allow ourselves to move into that place of simplicity, what bubbles up from us is pure inspiration. In that book, Your Journey to Enlightenment, I talk about us being the divine child. And the reason I speak to that is the same point that you brought up earlier, it was presence. Children are present. They play completely. They are fully immersed in their emotion, in their play. They disappear into it. They're in the wonder and the creativity, and pure inspiration bubbles up. We have forgotten how to be children. We are constantly chasing the future or constantly resenting the past. And so we're never right here now. And then we don't understand why the perfect solutions don't show up or the challenges appear in our lives. The more present we can become, the more childish we can become, childlike, excuse me, childlike we can become, the more those things do not even happen because problems don't exist in the present moment. Only trust and wonder and inspiration can exist in the present moment. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm very happy to be speaking with Simran, the author of the new book, Your Journey to Love, and the publisher of 1111 Magazine and host of the very popular radio show 1111 as well. And we're talking about transcending our current belief system and our current attachments 
to what we view as the necessary default world. I my own personal my own story here, and this is not me, but this is from my my work day. I'm a lawyer, as I've said in the past, and what happens it what's happened in my firm is that some of the most successful lawyers who have gotten older who cannot give up their attachments they both they've all gotten very sick it's unbelievable to me the number just this past year there have been three that have gotten serious illnesses and have had to retire and and one of them can can barely read um, one of them two of them can't walk there, there is a, there's a personal impact on this. I, I, and, and some people talk about this, but, but do you think that this is all related to health as well, Simran? I believe that everything hits the physical when we completely ignore the mental and the emotional yeah. and the energetic bodies. Yeah. And so, what's taking place is if we do are not willing to stop, especially the things that internally we don't like anymore, we don't want to do. The body makes us stop. The book, Your Journey to Love, was written from a place of sheer devastation that I encountered in my life, hitting up against probably one of the most painful, heartbreaking, hopeless situations that one can encounter. And as I hit that place, I had to stop and say, what have I created now and why? Why would this show up in my life now? What is it trying to get me to do? And I realized it's trying to get me to stop. It's trying to get me to feel. But, you know, we don't want to feel some of those emotions that we call negative. We don't want to feel the sadness. We don't want to feel the anger. We don't want to feel the hopelessness. And I thought to myself, what if I let myself think fully into it? What would happen? Can I go that deeply into my emotion to discover what would happen? And would that be a loving thing to do? And I realized that that really is what love is asking. And all that appears, whether it's illness or tragedy or heartbreak, it is love asking you to love yourself more deeply. And in going into that place of utter heartbreak, you feel as if you're falling into a black hole. And oftentimes our mind tells us, if I go there, I'll never rise again. I'll die. Yeah. But in actuality, what happens is we're going into the void. We're going into a place, a place of complete black space so that something new, something bigger can rise. We're diving into our humanity, which is what the world has lost. The reason we see everything in the world that we see, whether it is violence or whether it is heartbreak or whether it is sadness and turmoil, we're seeing it because we're not willing to face it within ourselves. And when we are willing to see our own grief, to see our own demonistic natures, to see our own angelic sides, when we're willing to see all of ourselves, then we will have embraced our own humanity. And in doing so, we will truly be able to love another, truly be able to embrace all of humanity. But until then, we cannot. And it's all grounded, ironically, in the fairy tale. What we were first taught as children, the fairy tale. We're all after this quest of being loved, this quest of the happy ending. And what we didn't realize when we were taught all those fairy tales is we imprinted that in ourselves and our minds to create those scenarios in our lives, but we forgot that fairy tales have the wicked witch or the evil sorcerer. 
and they had the poisoned apple and the tumultuous journey. We only remember the end part. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing about writing a book that most authors appreciate that really comes across in your book, Your Journey to Love, and for what it's worth, my book, The Collapse of Materialism, was exactly the same thing, which is that it is a personal journey. It is a personal journey. It is a personal experience because you've got to figure out yourself first before you could say anything about other people or the world, you know, in my opinion. In my own book, I was trying to figure out you know, life and science and religion. And in your book, Your Journey to Love, it's clearly a personal journey. And and you and it, the heart is, is, you know, your heart is, is spread all over this book with, with, with lessons and, and insights and inspirations. And it's, it's really, it's, it, from that sense, it really shows really the power of writing because it's not just for the audience, right? Around it's all it's for yourself. <laughs> it's, it's it's for yourself, and that's really I think what makes it appealing is that when you read something like this, like like your journey to love, people are seeing themselves in that same journey. We know we all have our different different lives and different trajectories and paths and all this stuff, but but. It, it's. I think it's. It's always encouraging uh, to see that some that that it's common to somebody who's writing a book, and that we could pick up, learn lessons from somebody that that really um, hits the depths, but then rises out of there. So, so I think it's 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 really a good approach to to really you raise a huge huge point, Philip, and yeah. that is anything that we do has to be done for the self first. Yeah. Otherwise, it's robotic. It's right. mechanistic. Right. And if you're not doing, if you're not writing, if you're not creating, if you're not working, if you're not playing completely for yourself first, it cannot touch another's heart because it will not have touched your own. Right. It is so important to do that. And you know, your journey to love was written, it, it was meant to open the heart. It, it, it opened my heart. It, it, it broke open every every place that was sealed with hardness, which we all have, or every place that I didn't want to look into. And we, we have places within us that we are here to see. We have to understand that we are each both the angel and the demon. And we want to all be the angel or the God or the light. But until we're fully willing to marry with that shadow side, that demon side, that what we want to call wounded and broken side, we are not whole. And so this book is about that mystical marriage that many of the poets and the uh, religious texts speak of. It is the lover and beloved. Your shadow in your light is the lover and beloved. And when you find that, you'll find your divinity is intertwining and wrapped all up in there. Your your journey to love is it's about understanding who you're it, you know the title is uh, "Discover the Path to Your Soul's True Mate." What did you mean by that? Do you, do you mean? Go ahead. What do you mean by that? There, there are a hundred hundred million active singles in the United States alone. Right. Even people who are in a relationship oftentimes are not completely happy, and somewhere in their mind crops up the idea: "I wonder if there's someone else out there that's my true soulmate." 
And so we're always on this quest to be fulfilled by something outside of us, thinking that there's somebody out there that is really meant for us. And there is. Each one of us has one true soulmate. But that one true soulmate is you. It is the side of you that you've been denying, that you've been condemning, that you've been hiding and pushing away. See, if we only realize that to get to the light, you have to have dark. And that part of us that lived early life, from zero to 30 or 40, went through every obstacle and every challenge and created every wound and every heartbreak simply so that you could have the ending part of your journey, which is the hero or the heroine, the light, the, the attainment of truth. That part of you was willing to be weak and wounded. They loved you enough to allow you all the experiences to gain the wisdom from to be the other. And I talk about that being part of the Trinity. We know the Trinity in the way that the Bible speaks of it, but there are actually 13 levels of the Trinity, from the God self to the human self. And so the next step of the Trinity is the shadow of you, the light of you, and then the divinity of you. And those three coming together move you up the spiral of consciousness. And so I'm talking about a mystical marriage that has to take place. And when you discover that you are your true soulmate, then there's no need for anything outside of you to fill you up. Then you can truly honor another for who they are and be honored for who you are. And there's not a requirement to have someone to complete you. There's only a celebration of two people being together or a celebration of you being okay on your own. Yeah. That's what this is supposed to be about. Yeah, that that's that was the message I got, and that, that was uh, encouraging uh, because it's something that is needed uh, I think a lot in our in our society, and now I'm going to ask you an unfair question, um, which once in a while I, I get a I, I get a chance to do, and the unfair question is, what is love to you? What is love? You know, I've, I've written this book three times, <laughs> and the first time I wrote this book was about um, almost a dozen years ago, yeah. and at that time I thought love was um, doing things for other people, working right. as hard as I could, fulfilling tasks. Um, it was more of a process. Then I stepped into writing this book again about five years ago, and it became more of a love was, you know, okay, how can I love myself more? Let me go do more bubble baths or take a workshop or read a book or empower myself. And then we get into that phase of love. Oh, let me let people do things for me. And so then it came to this point of heartbreak uh, that happened this past year. And I realized love is not a path, a process, a workshop or anything. It is actually a path. And it is a path of awareness. It is a path of presence. It is a path of acceptance. And so love is really allowing every part of me and every part of you as the entire field without the need to change it or fix it or witness it or do anything with it other than simply be with it. Yeah. That is the true essence of love. Yeah, it's it's something that it's 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 such a amazing topic, uh, and the one thing good about the concept of love is that you never hear people give it a bad slant, but but I, but more and more, it's a term that has so many different connotations that 
it's hard sometimes to be on the same page. It's also difficult to understand the depth of the, of the term. I mean, just to tell you where I'm where I'm coming from on this, that I think it is it's a a understanding or or a or a, a sense that that which one desires ha, is true. That it's a it's a melting of the self into the world, and that's that has always been, you know, and it's something that to me is in it's a state of progression. That to mm-hmm. me, that to me sort of connects with your concept, which I'll move now to. You use the word holographic a lot in in your book, uh, the, your book, your journey to love, and one quote that I, I wrote down here: "All life is holographic." Why? Why are you? Why are you using the word holographic? What? What are? What are you? What are you getting across with with the use of that term? As much as we want to believe that everything around us and that even we are real, uh, this this is this really is a dream in the way that the mystics talk about. This is everything is is a hologram, and in that hologram, what is represented is another aspect of you. So there really is only one in the room, and that happens to be you, and that happens to be divinity in itself. We are each God's walking, and that collective sense of all of us walking, we are the one divine. And so everything is going to be a depiction of that one divine in another holographic sense. And the more we're willing to recognize the other as ourselves, the more we will come into that state of oneness and everything will continue to mirror to us who we are until we are willing to recognize it and become aware that it is another aspect of the one that we are. And that's the concept that I uh, espouse to get across to people when I say holographic, so that they could understand, number one, that everything is a mirror, but number two, don't be so serious about it all. It yep. really is all out there for the play. It is a truly divine play. Yes. Well, it's a much more optimistic perspective. This is what this is why I think this view cannot help but prevail at the end of the day, Simran. It's because you base we're basically in control of writing our own destinies and that we're and that the world does not control us. And this is this particular truth uh, it's it's framed in all sorts of ways from this you know the book the secret intentionality there's hundreds of books written about you know making your own life or creating your own world and it's got all sorts of different uh, expressions but if it's true and I happen to think it is true if life is really a dream or a holograph then it is there then it's there for us to make the best dream or the best world and that is a lot better than being a victim of circumstances a victim of society or a victim of your upbringing etc etc and it's also I think connected to another one of your um, your your expressions in your book you talk about fallen angels which I love that Um, how how is how are we fallen angels you're talking about fall, that we are fallen angels who have forgotten that um, we have clipped our own wings or something like that. Is This is all connected, I take it. Yes, yes. I, you know, I think it, it's from two perspectives, and people will receive it um, based on the perspective that they align with in this moment. We all have people in our lives that um, trigger us 
or that have, have hurt us or that we want to blame for something. Those people showed up in a wounded way, in a fallen way, specifically for you to be able to achieve the awareness of something, whether it was your beauty or your power or your empowerment or your level of forgiveness or your degree of love. They all created that specific scenario because they loved you enough to do so. And so they clipped their own wings so that they could be that fallen angel. In the same sense, you did so as well. You clipped your own wings so that you could be human for a while, so that you could walk through the human condition and forget who you were, so that you could remember the truth, so that you could truly step into the realization of the allness and the wide expanse of you beyond just being your physical body or the identity or uh, a being with two legs and two arms, a spacesuit. And so that's the degree of the fallen angel. And if you're the fallen angel, then you would have to be the other. I'd like to go back to one other point too, Philip, and it is about duality. You know, I'm not one of those people that in the positivity movement is going to sit there and say, and, and I had so many people say this to me as I as I hit that moment of real sadness this past year. I had people come to me and say, you know, life goes on, just get over it. Yeah. Move past it. Right. You know, you, just dust yourself off and, and, and it's time to get back up. Right. And that's what people say to us, you know, or, you know, we're told to affirm our way out of things or vision board our way out of things, intend your way out of things. And that's not what we're supposed to do. I'm going to actually tell you to do the opposite. I'm going to tell you to sink into the feelings and the emotions. Duality is not good, bad, right, wrong, light, dark. Duality is our judgment of good, bad, right, wrong, light, dark. Duality is the judgment. It's not the anger and the bliss. It's the judgment of what you think about anger or bliss. If you can get rid of the judgment, all of a sudden, there's no longer duality. So it becomes part of the experience. It's experience. All right. emotion is simply experience. If you allow it to fully immerse in you, if you marinate completely in your anger, it doesn't mean you have to act out on it, but you have to feel it through your entire body, your being, your mind, your emotion. If you can feel it, what you'll find is very quickly it rises up and through you and out. And yes. it's gone. Yes. But what we do is we suppress it, we push it down, and so we keep having incidents so that anger rises back up. Or then we have it explode in our body as disease, like you talked about earlier. That's from suppression and repression. And so can you just be with and feel everything as it comes through so that you cleanse it? You know, when you look at children, that's what they do. My little one, when he's upset and angry, he throws a full-out tantrum. He's on the floor, he's kicking, he's screaming, there's tears, there's screams, and then in an instant, if he sees something that strikes joy in him, all of that stops and then he's giggling. (laughs) It happens in a split second. That's what children do, that's what we've forgotten. Instead, we hold on to it. And and that's one of the wisest things that we can learn from children. Yeah, well, I'd like to say that that there's one advantage of getting older, and I'm always looking for advantages of getting older, and there are a lot of them. Um, one of them is that I cycle through those down periods faster. I don't, I mean, I think that 
I get over things quicker. And part of, and, you know, it could be because I need to because, uh, because quote unquote, time is short and therefore I can't dwell in the negative. But I, I that's, but I, I think it's, it's training yourself to, to not be in, in a perpetual state of judgment, maybe, you know, in, in your terms or holding grudges or fixating on the negative. You know, you see it, you experience it, you release it, you move on. And this way, it's sort of following what you're saying. It's, it's, it becomes part of your experience. It becomes part of your character, right? Is yeah. It, right. You know, I, I love a good cry. Yeah. I love a good bout of sadness. It is yeah. like a juicy orange. It is yeah. like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. I feel this in my body, and yeah. I'm just wanting to be on the couch under a blanket. Oh, yeah. let the tears come. I want to feel. Can you be that yeah. with your emotion yeah. as yeah. much as you want to be in the laughter? Because when you can do that, there's such a sense of freedom yeah. and peace that arises in you because there is no judgment around it. It is pure experience. Yeah, and there are, there are people, and I'm... Who unfortunately there's a really good side of depression, sadness, and some of the great inspirations occur at those moments. I don't know about you, Simran, but it happens to me. When I get in those kinds of moods, it's bad in one way, but I know it's good because I'm reaching an emotional state that is sort of tuned into something, whether it's rawer or barren or whether it's a desperate move or whatever it's whatever it is. But a lot of inspiration, to me, comes out of those moments. I don't know if that's the same thing with you, but... Because the heart is open. Yeah. In those moments, the heart is truly open. And true, great creativity does not come from the brain. The brain is a processing system. Yeah. True, great inspiration that is meant to impact change and ripple out in the world, it's going to come from the open heart. That is where we tap into source, to, to true super That is where all the great wisdom of masters or the great inventions of time have come from. It's because people have been open to something greater than what the processing computer of the mind can even handle. Your brain can only process what it has been exposed to, which means it is limited by the scope of experience, the family lineage that you've come from, the realm of experience that you've had. What about all the rest that exists? Right, and yeah. that can only come from the heart. Yeah, I, yeah, and there is definitely, there's definitely truth there, and because the heart is sincere, it's it's real, and and I think that from a non-Western materialistic standpoint, it's sort of the base. <laughs> it's sort of the base of existence, as opposed to. Uh, maybe the scientific approach, which would which would be looking at uh, logic, rationality, the mind. Uh, and I want to, uh, as we're as we're nearing the end here, I want to ask about the rebel humanitarian because I love that term. Uh, I also like to create a visionary too, but the rebel humanitarian sort of links to um, something which I love to ask guests like you who have given us so much thought and have done such um, so many good things out there to get people sort of opened up uh, it's, which is where where do you think we're heading here um, we talk about world shifts consciousness rising we all have our own sort of different personal transformations I mean 
what is your sense of of where things are heading in our in our little world here with regard to this whole let me just call it consciousness movement what's your spin? you know i think this despite ourselves we're heading in an amazing place yeah because whether we're willing to become more conscious and present and step out of our identities and these house of card lives that we've tried to create around ourselves or whether we're willing to allow the impermanence of life and change to uh, kind of desecrate it for us. Either way, we're heading in a direction of understanding that we are more than the things that surround us. Yeah. We are more than our bank accounts. We're more than the identity. We're more than the image that we're trying to uphold. And the moment that we actually understand that our insecurities of life are actually our greatest allies, then we will realize that our true power lay in that insecurity. Mm. Because then we are open to feeling. We're open to expanding. We're open to living fearlessly like the child. And we're open to embracing the gamble that life is. Only when we're willing to be the gambler in life can we truly dive into aliveness. That is what the rebel humanitarian is. The rebel humanitarian is that person that's saying, I'm no longer here to conform. I'm here to step courageously into things I've never known before because I'm not here to know who I am. You know, everyone hears that statement, know who you really are. What I want to tell you is you're not here to know who you really are. You're here to unknow who you are. Hmm. Step into your unknown self. Yeah. Because that's where true consciousness lies. Yeah, it's it's connected to this, and you know, and sometimes I use uh, descriptions uh, of my own or from other guests or from other writers, and I don't know whether they're aligned with your thinking, but but there's a lot of similarities here. There is this idea uh, that I had on one show that all this is about is personal transformation. That what that we can't you can't control. Um, the world itself. You can't control science. You can't control religion. This is all about the personal transformation. What what is what are your views on that? Whether it's is this a personal transformation or is this a world transformation? I think if we are focused on personal transformation, we are still in the eye. We are okay. still in the identity. Yeah. We're still separate. And if we can understand that we're not even to be focused on the world transformation. Because what if there's nothing to save, fix, or heal? Yeah. What if it really is all is, and, and it is all un- organically unfolding, and it is all perfect in its imperfection? Can we just be in the experience? Allowing true inspiration to bubble up, having no agendas, not living in the future of what can I accomplish or gain or become, but literally saying, I'm going to be present now, and I will only act and move when inspiration rises up through me, not because I think I need to be seen or loved or acknowledged, but because the pure inspiration lights a fire that will not let me do anything else other than create. Yeah, I I think that, to me, we need to have a more peaceful world a calmer world, a more open-minded world. And I, of course, I'm as idealistic as they come, 
I like to think that this this uh, idea, you know, the idea is that you're you're advocating that others are advocating, um, but but that you do so well in terms of opening up to your true self and 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 not leading the default life and and loving more that it leads to a real it, it, a, a real changes in our world I think that's that to me is is really the vision I have because this because to me then all of a sudden you have a a um, habitat that is more conducive to the growth of the child mind let, let me put it that way um, mm. So, so I, I think that the, you know, I think the sky is the limit here. Now, with that said, we have reached the end, and Simran, I could go on and on with you. I think that you, you are, you are really um, uh, unique, um, and I, and I'm happy that many people are appreciating the work you're doing. You have all sorts of different websites and connections and social media. Why don't you, why don't you give folks uh, maybe one or two of the best ways to connect with you and then learn more? Thank you, Philip. And I just want to say I really appreciate your openness and the the vast intelligence of the dialogue that we've been able to share. It really is refreshing and beautiful to go so deeply with another person back and forth. So thank you. My website is Simran, I-A-M-S-I-M-R-A-N.com. All of my books, CDs, coaching, everything that I do is there. I have three books, Your Journey to Love, Your Journey to Enlightenment, and Conversations with the Universe, and they are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and my website, IamSimran.com. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh Simron, and I would uh, encourage folks to go to Simron's website and click on a couple of her uh, videos or her the interviews she's given or talks, and she is something else. Uh, and I, you know, Simron, you're something else on your feet, by the way. Um, you're you're a very inspiring t uh, speaker, and I think that that's really what we need here. And there's really not much more I could say here, um, other than viewing the world as a reflection of ourselves I think leads to not only a much more promising world but a world that is that has unlimited richness uh, and in a in a future that I think is not only inspiring but that we could all we could all grow and we could all rise above uh, the mundane the default lifestyles and find uh, the divine within each of us. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week with Mark Anthony, uh, who will be talking about his new book about science and the afterlife. We'll see you next week. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.